This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. The information war is very much alive and not just at the grassroots level. We almost see playing out in Ukraine, you know, methods that are kind of being tested for the first time, too. I mean, Zelensky would be the obvious great example with that. But even testing, you know, how the public is responding to to disinformation, to countering that disinformation and, you know, what effect it has on both public sentiment and the, you know, drive of individuals with power to be able to make decisions in this space. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I'll be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Okay, so today we're joined by Bridget Johnson, who is a veteran journalist, newsroom leader, and terrorism analyst with a specialty in online open source extremist propaganda, recruitment, and training. She has diverse experience in radio, TV, and live speaking engagements, host and presenter of Homeland Security Today, law enforcement training webinars, studying a, a wide range of counterterrorism topics, including conspiracy theory, extremism, complex coordinated attacks, and critical infrastructure, amongst many other topics, to include also WMD threats. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Look forward to it. So one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast was because you had a post on LinkedIn, which I thought was incredibly interesting, about crowdsourcing conflict. And with the, the background of the current conflict in Ukraine and sort of your work and your specialty, how did you come to this point of where you've identified this, this what I think is a very unique term about crowdsourcing conflict and what we're seeing in Ukraine these days? So where did you sort of start? And then how did you end up in this place um, where you've identified and watched these things? So my coverage of anonymous and basically non-state actors jumping into conflict began um, back in the kind of heyday of ISIS when they had the physical caliphate in Iraq and Syria. And uh, you remember at that time that the terror group was uh, capitalizing on social media like no terror group had done before. They were taking advantage of everything from Twitter to Facebook to WhatsApp to YouTube to, you know, every um, file sharing site, you know, JustPace, archive.org, to be able to disseminate their propaganda, to be able to recruit new followers, to be able to have an open line of communication. And, you know, what we saw as a result was, you know, a huge stream of foreign fighters from all around the world and people who were recruited and on their home turf. And there was a, you know, a big emphasis on, you know, as I, I called it at the time, the, the bloom where you're planted um, terror recruitment where, you know, just stay at home and do your thing there. So anonymous at the time 
the the collective, you know, the the there is no group per se, you know, there's no group leader, there's no group website, there's no group meetings, you know, anything like that. Um, so this 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 loose collective of hackers jumped into the game with Op Isis, and so what they were doing was because. Um, you know, there was so much social media out there for law enforcement to try to catch. There was so much for social media companies to spot and take down. Anonymous was filling the void, basically, and jumping in, taking down uh, social media accounts, taking down their websites, and so, you know, waging cyber war from that front. Now, as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, Anonymous came out with Op Russia. But this one has taken on a little bit of a different dimension because you still have Anonymous going and taking down websites, um, swiping information, doing data dumps uh, from Russian entities. But they recognized in this case that there was an information warfare aspect to it. Uh, they wanted to be able to have a way to fight Russia's disinformation and also combat the fact that Putin blocked traditional sources of media and social media within Russia so that people would there would not be able to get the accurate news about what was happening in Ukraine. So some anonymous programmers came up with this tool, um, web-based tool, where people could go and send text messages to random Russian cell phone numbers. And then they expanded that to be able to personally call them, uh, to be able to send WhatsApp messages, and just multiple routes where people could send a message um, and they were, you know, encouraging people to don't be hostile about it, be friendly, but be straightforward and, you know, maybe some pictures, videos, just demonstrate, you know, what is happening in Ukraine. And the latest stats that I saw on it was that over 50 million messages have been sent using that one tool. And how they did that was not with fellow hackers. They put the tool out there. They advertised it to people on social media who were concerned about Ukraine, people who did not have any hacking skills, but people who wanted to be part of this information warfare. And one of the, the comments I remember seeing on one of those LinkedIn posts was somebody saying, oh, you know, this is great. This is all about the younger generation who's savvy with technology getting into the game and no 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 you actually looked at the people who were responding to anonymous and saying you know hey you know i i sent 100 messages the other day or you know i i did this on on my phone the other day and a lot of them the majority i would say were like retirees stay-at-home moms um, you know, one woman was was boasting that she had been able to send 50 text messages to Russians while she was breastfeeding. So there was a, a, a component that we've never really seen before there where people were so eager to get into the fight and um, they were 
reporting back that, you know, some of the Russians were answering them. Some were not nice, but some were very nice. And, you know, were engaging in conversations. Some were relating to uh, these digital warriors, as we'd call them, saying, you know, hey, I hadn't heard that news. Hey, where can I find some news? You know, how can I, how can I get through, you know, on my internet? So they were able to relay instructions from Anonymous on um, how to use the Tor browser, how to get around uh, the, the different blocks of sensors in Russia. And I think that the greatest takeaway from that, and this is something that everybody from governments to nonprofits to you know anybody with a stake in the security game whatsoever, is that people just don't just want to be on the de- defensive. People want to be on the offense. And so in this case, providing them with a route to be able to say, hey, I am actively participating in countering the disinformation from Russia, reaching out to Russians personally, and being part of this greater, you know, gray hat operation from Anonymous is, is you know, very, very priceless to a lot of these people. And so that... I think is is definitely a takeaway that can be channeled into so many areas. Yeah, I've I've read in, in multiple accounts of where I, I've actually seen the tool that you were talking about because I've seen that just sort of spread across uh, social media and many different sort of Telegram groups and things like that. And and it, it's extremely interesting from the perspective of they've been able to leverage a portion of society to enact on their behalf. But certainly Anonymous is not the only actor in town as well. And so I think what we're seeing in terms of the Ukraine conflict is also a significant leveraging of social media and things like that. Uh, and, you know, and, and Zelensky's playing a, a very good role in this as well. So what are what else are you seeing across the spectrum of, if you want to call that information operations or whatever, and in terms of the Ukraine conflict, um, because it is certainly, and I think most people largely recognize this is an entirely new era in terms of trying to deal with these issues, an open conflict in Europe, and then the impact in the terms of use of social media and many other tools that you've mentioned. Yeah, you know, you can't help but look at it and think, and, and watch it unfold and think, you know, how would the Second World War have turned out if these information channels were open back then and truth was able to be spread in the the areas where it needed to be. You notice that that with Zelensky, his perception, his persona, the amount of people rallying vociferously to his side changed so much just with that first uh, video. It was like a selfie video with he and and his the members of his his cabinet, you know, with the the government buildings in the backdrop. And just proving that they were still there, that they weren't fleeing, that they weren't going anywhere. And, you know, that's when he took off as a household name, that's for sure. But, you know, also uh, rallied this invaluable grassroots support that has basically held a lot of governments to account. Um, you know, a lot of uh, policymakers and and are not going to want to say no at this point to, to the things that, that Ukraine needs and, and the, the help that they want because of uh, the public groundswell. But of course, in this space too, we have the, the disinformation ops. Now, from what I've heard, the usual 
staffing of Russian troll farms may be down at this point because um, what's happening to the ruble, these are still people who are on salary and need to be paid. But it's very easy to go into, for example, a, a Twitter conversation and uh, pick out the trolls who are responding. You know, they follow a lot of people, have a couple of followers themselves, and are spouting lines that, you know, if you like copy and paste that line and put it into search, um, you'll find multiple accounts <laughs> basically uh, spouting the, the exact same, uh, you know, rebuttal or argument or retort. And I think that for people who have been paying attention in this conflict, for, especially for the, the people who um, have decided to join those information ops in some way, they're getting more educated about what the disinformation looks like on how to be able to spot it. But unfortunately, we've also seen disinformation parroted by some mainstream sources here in the United States. And we even have seen that reflected on Russian state TV, where hosts have brought up different pieces of media coverage in the United States that they thought were favorable to them and basically giving them a, a good boy pat on the back. The information war is very much alive and not just at the grassroots level. We almost see playing out in Ukraine, you know, methods that are kind of being tested for the first time, too. I mean, Zelensky would be the obvious great example with that. But even testing, you know, how the public is responding to, to disinformation, to countering that disinformation, and, you know, what effect it has on both public sentiment and the, you know, drive of individuals with power to be able to make decisions in this space. While you were, you know, explaining that a bit more, I, where I kind of was starting to think was in terms of the, the, the whole portion of crowdsourcing and information and disinformation. So not all crowdsourcing is necessarily negative, right? And so I've also seen in many different sort of groups and coordination groups for Ukraine and trying to respond from a humanitarian aspect, lots of sort of crowdsourcing going on in Poland, Moldova, Romania, and things like that, where people are trying to help. And, and in many cases, you know, they haven't had to put up, say, refugee, a lot of refugee centers in Poland because so many people have taken them in to private homes due to crowdsourcing. So I, you know, there's multiple dimensions here, and I think some are, are obviously very positive, and then some of our are, are have, have a very negative net effect. But I think one of the things that is really quite different this time that we're seeing in the Ukrainian conflict, and you had mentioned, say, what was what would happen if this was happening in history. But one of the things is really interesting in, in terms of the disinformation pieces is seeing really just all the different types of videos coming out. You know, and even like I, you know, I, I'm in Germany, so I watch the German news and then I see sort of video coming out that has already been disproven, you know, that, that is not from the Ukraine conflict, but is shown on sort of the morning news, you know, in Germany. And just the amount of sheer sort of disinformation and, and that is just out there is so difficult to weed through to be able to get a really accurate understanding of what's happening on the ground itself. Like how... In, from your perspective, how much of a challenge is this? Is this a proportionally significant challenge? I mean, what are we sort of looking at here? 
Yeah, I mean, the the minute that you mentioned that, the first thing I thought of was how the first deepfake video has been deployed. It was that that deepfake video of Zelensky saying that he was going to surrender. And to the, the trained eye, it wasn't a very good deepfake. To the untrained eye, it might have been real. The, the, the video sphere has been uh, very difficult because it, when we even look at past conflicts, we've seen that still photos, for example, were altered to reflect a certain viewpoint, so to speak. And um, videos can be hard to put back in the bottle because once a video come out, comes out that shows something shocking, that shows something that supports a certain viewpoint, it can spread like wildfire across social media. And even when the fact checkers follow up on that and say, no, this is not a real video, you know, here are the points where, you know, it was obviously doctored, um, the cat's already out of the bag. And there are some people who, as we've seen too on, 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 you know, social media circles, are not going to accept the ruling of the fact checker. And this is also coming at a point when conspiracy theory extremism has has taken off like never before. You can have a video out there that is correct, and you could have a mass of people from QAnon or some other ideological movement trying to make some vociferous argument about why um, it was doctored, you know, why it's some sort of... Uh, government or media conspiracy, and, you know, this is what the real story is. And so going into a conflict with that environment already on the ground is definitely a challenge. And, but I just have to to, to, to add to what you said before about uh, humanitarian relief. That has definitely been the upside <laughs> of all of this. Um, just seeing that 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 groundswell, seeing you know groups like World Central Kitchen be able to uh, report in real time what is going on on the ground, um, who is getting fed, who needs relief. Um, you know, being able to see the people who are coming across the border and to see their needs in real time, and for uh, people to just take it upon themselves to organize humanitarian, in this case, basically disaster relief, has, has just been extraordinary. So we, we definitely have two sides of, two sides of this coin in this, this, uh, this conflict. Oh, definitely. What are your thoughts when you see some of these videos um, coming out that are posted almost daily now, right? Where, you know, the SBU in Ukraine has intercepted a phone call with some people you know, the, the soldier in Ukraine and is calling his mother, you know, in, in Russia. And and there's a couple of questions about this. First of all, I mean, like, I don't even know if it's authentic, right? That's always the first question. The second thing is, and, and we've seen sort of people reporting from Moscow, from Russia, and just the level of, you know, cognitive dissonance there that's occurring in terms of propaganda is sometimes amazing. What are your kind of thoughts when you when you see these things coming up in the social media sphere? Because for me, it's also a tool. It's a tool that people are using to portray a certain image as well every time they release these recorded conversations. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that 
can be of value of transparency if, like you said, it's real. You know, one of the things that Anonymous has been doing has been um, intercepting military radio bands and uh, posting a lot of the, the, the conversations that go along there, um, especially if they have something to do with military movements or resupply or um, anything that they think, you know, might be able to um, help the, the, the Ukrainian side. You know, another thing, the quick aside that, that they've been doing is that they've been penetration testing all of the cameras around Kyiv to ensure that Russia cannot hack them to be able to see movements of Zelensky or military or police or anybody else in the city. And so after penetration testing, I think they found that like 3% were vulnerable and they reported those to the, the authorities in Kyiv so that they could take care of that. But the, the interception of communications, though, makes you think about how that can be done in other scenarios as well, too. You know, take, for example, if there's a major hurricane that happened and it turns into, you know, some sort of relief fiasco like we've seen with, with some past um, events. And hackers could intercept emergency band communications and post them to say that things like, well, you know, they were really telling you that you should have gone to this spot or that, you know, they, they, they didn't have enough capacity for people and they knew it beforehand, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot of implications for being able to um, intercept private communications that are going on, you know, with government entities or uh, nonprofits, et cetera. That are that are reaching beyond this conflict, but I think uh, you know we're definitely getting a, a a taste of that here. And you know, like like we've we've stressed, you know, it's not easy to be able to tell which are authentic. Um, though I think uh, there's there's definitely also been a language barrier with some of the people who have been intercepting some of these communications. So they throw them out there in a lot of cases just to be able to say, who can interpret this? What are they saying? Uh, they're doing that with data dumps as well. You know, hey, we're just going to throw it out there. It's all public. Everybody just dip into it, see what you can interpret, and let us know. <laughs> yeah, def definitely. I, I wanted to talk about that really quick, and then I'd like to sort of turn this back to the U.S., in a way of now that we're watching this, what does it mean for us type of points. But in terms of these data dumps and in terms of the sanctions, I think that, you know, when we talk about crowdsourcing conflict and the term that you're using, which, again, I think is very fitting, we're seeing sanctions being applied by nation state to another nation state, different mechanisms being used. But then you're seeing also these um I don't even know the word that I would call it, but, you know, these sort of implied sanctions or the 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 social sourcing of sanctions, you know, from companies that continue to operate in Russia and things like that. And so we're, we're seeing this in, you know, expanded effort as well. And you mentioned the data dumps. And so that's sort of astonishing to watch in terms of, you know, people just basically taking action on their own outside of the normal mechanisms that you typically have, which is, you know, generally a civilian tools, diplomacy, economic, you know, and even military tools that, that go along with an international response to a crisis. Um, so what does this mean in terms of, you know, all these various non-state actors getting involved? As you mentioned, 
from mothers in, I don't know, Oklahoma, right, who are sending text <laughs> messages to, to right. you know, non-affiliated groups like Anonymous. Well, once you have that kind of power in your hands, <laughs> I mean, it can be, be used for, for good or bad. Um, you know, one, one, one that's, that's kind of, you know, more innocuous that I, that I really liked was uh, they were able to hack point-of-sale terminals in Russia so that when people got their receipt at a restaurant, it was saying, Putin kills children, Putin kills children. <laughs> and um, they've also been able to hack ATMs so that when people select Russian as the language, the message Slava Ukraini comes up. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's, there's, there's one anonymous affiliated hacking group that's been uh, doing some pretty major work uh, named MB65, stands for Network Battalion. They announced the other day that um, they had hacked a Russian entity and they're like, hey, you know, does, does the... Uh, does the ransomware we use look familiar? And it turns out that they used ransomware that was from the Conti ransomware group, which is Russia-based, pro-Russia. Earlier in the conflict, Anonymous had hacked into some internal chats from the Conti group and had released them. And that seemed to spark some worry at DHS because um, the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency uh, quickly put out a message after that saying that, hey, Conti is still very much a threat. They're still trying to attack U.S. entities as we speak. So, you know, don't think that, you know, they're, they've let up or anything like that. But so this hacker, MB65, he takes the Conti ransomware. He modifies it in a way that it's unable for them to use Conti's antidote, we should say, <laughs> Um, and deploys it on this Russian entity, and at, at the at you know on the face of it, you're just like, like oh man, that's kind of cool. You know, they they took this Russian ransomware and they turned it around on Russia. But then you realize, oh, okay, so this more impervious, you know, impenetrable type ransomware is out there now. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, they're not using it for the point of trying to extract ransom. They're just using it for wholesale damage. So the innovation that we see come out of necessity um, in this uh, cyber war and information warfare can have the potential for bad or good. Depends whose hands it's in. Depends if they're a gray hat or a white hat or a black hat. You know, if, if there is something that another government does that they don't like, can they take those skills? Can they even take some of that non-hacker digital army and turn it around on that government? Yeah, and I think that's really the, the key point here. While, while it's been amazing to watch sort of all these different examples come up, like you were mentioning, and, and how they've, you know, hacked television stations and everything else that go along with it. It's, I think that the larger question remains of, you know, what happens when it's us, right? So what happens yeah. if that, those, you know, those same organizations or that same effort is applied, you know, in the United States? And, you know, we typically, you know, at least on this podcast, we talk about the, you know, sort of the emergency management piece and, and sort of the international crisis piece and how those sort of fit together. 
But I can't imagine, you know, and you already gave sort of a different example, but if you have a large-scale disaster, say there's another Hurricane Katrina or there's, you know, anything coming up like that, and you have intercepted conversations or you have, you know, somebody's just not happy and, and they, you know, sort of start turning the same tools in the United States, uh, what sort of outcomes would happen? And I, I think that's, you know, that's unsettling in terms of trying to to understand the impact that that would happen. And it would really sort of knock us back in terms of the response mechanisms, just because you'd have to be contending with all this other additional, uh, you know, information pieces coming up, having to also be, you know, very reactive to everything coming up, trying to get ahead of all these things. And you simply don't have any control over it. Exactly. Because, you know, is that sort of tool going to, you know, help, for example, search and rescue efforts by, you know, letting you know which people are on the rooftops, you know, which people need rescue? Or is it going to hamper uh, the efforts by disrupting communications, by throwing a wrench on the operations? Even if someone is, is, is jumping into communications or operations, um, you know, from a non-state perspective, uh, with good intentions, you know, it could also end up disrupting the entire process in a way that that the outside actor could not have foreseen because they're not familiar with inside operations. I think that's a real danger. Yeah, definitely. And what is your perception in terms of, you know, our communities being prepared to contend with these types of new issues that we're seeing evolve, like in the situation in Ukraine? I mean, there's there's been, and the reason why I say that is because there's always been, maybe not always is the best word, but there's always been, at least for a number of years, sort of this ongoing discussion about, you know, information and disinformation. And it's it's been going on for quite a few years now. But, you know, we're seeing results of Ukraine and we're seeing the fact that, you know, it, it's just suddenly, at least in my opinion, right, my uninformed opinion, <laughs> that it, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, basically just exploded in terms of the amount and quantity and and capabilities it's almost as if it's a proving ground it's a testing ground and that people are going to learn from this and adapt and, and get even better and i'm just now wondering how effective we've been in terms of being able to manage the situation in the states and then being able to look at what's happening in ukraine and then better prepare our communities for something that might happen internally yeah i really don't think that we've been ahead of it um and one thing that was um, unfolding for um, quite a while before Ukraine happened in terms of crowdsourcing information. And this is, you know, on, on the domestic front, very, um, very concerning, is the crowdsourcing of extremist information. And if you think about it, you know, all of these terror tutorials, you know, the Inspire magazine, different guides that have been put out, by Al-Qaeda, you know, by ISIS, by, you know, Al-Shabaab, different associate groups that were in English that were geared towards a Western audience are on the internet still for anybody to find. I did a little experiment the other day to, to go through one file sharing site and see how many issues of Inspire I was able to find, and I was able to find almost all of them. And these include the recipes, you know, for example, the pressure cooker bomb that was used at the Boston Marathon. These include step-by-step, -step, you know, very detailed pictorials on how to build IEDs, different devices, target selection, getting into hard targets, getting into soft targets, etc. And so these materials are out there for any extremist of any stripe 
to be able to access, to be able to use. But after the January 6th events, we actually saw this more overt sort of um, joining, you could say, where Al-Qaeda, they released a video and they referenced January 6th and they showed some of the um, scenes from the Capitol attack and said that, hey, you know, if there is any help you guys need, you can find it in the magazines that we put out from the Arabian Peninsula. And that's the Inspire magazines with the bomb recipes. And that 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 was kind of extraordinary to to see that public voicing of kind of like what we knew was going on with being able to information share and cross pollinate and and have this this big pool of extremist how to information out there and um, I I really think that that is you know, one of the great things that security is going to have to contend with in the um, coming era is just you have people who are crowdsourcing information, like I said, for good. You have, you know, people who are crowdsourcing information for very, very bad. And now with different tried, tested and true methods coming out of the, the, the Ukraine conflict, um, how are those going to be able to be used for uh, for recruiting new members, for being able to disrupt law enforcement communications and in- intercept law enforcement communications, to be able to, you know, for example, if there's another uh, event like the music festival that was attacked in Las Vegas, could people be finding out about security measures from the venue managers beforehand? Could they be looking for vulnerabilities and access points? Could they be able to disrupt the ability of first responders to get there and to organize um, to be able to effectively respond to an emergency like that? So we're definitely going to into some dark new territory. So then if we're looking across the horizon and it's, it's like you're saying, we haven't done that great of a job in our communities of sort of getting ahead of this, which, you know, I wholly understand is, is really complex and complicated and just is, is it's difficult to do. But so if we're if we're not getting ahead of this and we're not able to actually contend with it and deal with it with the current situation we have now, and then we have an evolving environment in Ukraine and a conflict where all these new tools and capabilities are being developed and tested, and, and then that comes back to our own communities, you know, what are we you know, if you're forecasting and you're reading your, your, you know, reading the tea leaves, so to speak, uh, what are you seeing in the next few years that are sort of trends and indicators for us that we should be looking at or be concerned about? My tea leaves are so optimistic. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I would go back to what I said earlier about how people want to be on the offense and, I think that the the next step is for emergency managers, for anybody involved in security, to study what has happened um, with the information warfare, with the um, battling of disinformation, with the hacking, including of critical infrastructure that has gone on in this conflict, and channel some of those 
ways into, you know, finding out how people can be more involved in resilience and response. Because you had this entire, you know, digital army, so to speak, of, of people who were ready to, you know, jump into the, 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 the war to, you know, battle on behalf of Ukrainians in this information space. So how could that same sort of fervor and energy be channeled into, you know, preparing a community for disaster, for being able to respond, you know, once that disaster arrives, uh, to being able to be a conduit and to help uh, first responders and emergency planners uh, and security officials instead of jumping into the space in such a way that is going to uh, disrupt operations. So this definitely has to be has to be studied. There has to be some takeaways and there has to be uh, forming that into some sort of action in a, such a way that uh, you tap into people's desire to get involved and be on the offensive and not just on the defensive. I'm glad you said that because my, that's where my mind was going as well, is that if, if we know the avenues that people pursue to try and do something from their phone to try and help or, or whatever the case is, you know, um, if we can preempt that, if we can sort of hijack that and, and then use that for good, you know, so if we had the capability as, you know, community leaders or, or whatever the case is, and officials to be able to have a platform for people to, to sort of plug into and to be able to, to harness that as you're talking about, I think that could be tremendous in terms of getting people oriented in the right direction. But then the following question, at least in my mind, comes to if we have the capability or even the manpower and resources to be able to have a platform like that. Um, and, you know, if we could deploy something like that quickly, because then once you do, you know, just the sheer quantity of people wanting to help from not just even your own community, but, you know, statewide or nationally or even globally could be overwhelming. And so that's sort of a, a resource question, I think, as well, which would have to be considered. What What are your thoughts on that? You are definitely right. <laughs> I mean, because, um, you know, my mind goes to the the um, how an agency would feel that they need to have some people in there to uh, manage the, you know, civilian component, whether it's a volunteer component, whether it's seen as sort of a, you know, reserves that comes up in, in a time of need. You know, de departments that, that do have, you know, reserves in other capacities, um, there's supervision, there's training, there's equipping, there's... Um, you know, all sorts of expenditures that go into being able to maintain readiness of such a force like that. And the theme with the Ukraine Digital Army is that um, there was basically no training other than here's how you log on to our website and be able to use this tool and have fun, go at it. If there was a similar operation in place that was managed by a government agency, the first question would be, uh, would as many people be as excited about it, you know, as they would be from, you know, guys in Guy Fox masks, you know, <laughs> who are uh, shady but good. And, you know, also, um, would people in that space 
who are volunteering their time feel that they were hamstrung by rules, you know, as to um, how much they could do, how, you know, far they could go, what they were supposed to say, what they were supposed to do. Um, whereas in this Ukraine space, they've also had free reign in that aspect um, to be able to engage with people on the Russian side, to be able to say, hey, I have time to sit down and do 100 text messages tonight. So I think the uh, funding is a big problem and bureaucracy would be another one. Um, a lot of agencies would be really nervous to pull in a volunteer component without guardrails of some point, of some type, um, without some red tape. So that, that could end up frustrating the, uh, the people who want to help. So do you ever envision that crowdsourcing could be a capability? I think that it could, but not tomorrow. <laughs> um, because there are going to be so many takeaways that come from not just good operations like in Ukraine, but with operations for bad, like the extremist crowdsourcing, that could instruct how people are operating from their different motivations, how those motivations can be channeled into something that helps the populace, that helps responders when things go awry, and how basically a groundswell of support that you can't necessarily predict before an event happens can be used to the benefit when it does occur. Um, so I think that there are a lot of, lot of questions that need to be worked through, but I think that with examples um, and even some sociological study of how people are reacting in times of crisis and using these tools in times of crisis would have to inform how those transformations are used to the benefit of, say, emergency managers. I definitely think there's a lot of lessons to be learned uh, as the situation continues to evolve and change. And, and I think you're definitely right. I mean, I would like to see crowdsourcing become ultimately a capability because even though it may be resource intensive, possibly resource intensive on the front side, you know, it has the capability of expanding, you know, organizational capability just right. because of the nature of it. And you get so many people to help you do things relatively with a, a low barrier to entry. But I, I really do take your point on, you know, there's going to be a public trust issue. There's going to be a social acceptance issue. And there's going to be a bureaucratic issue behind getting that to happen because people do feel, right, a sort of freedom or a sort of, um, you, you know, appeal to being able to, to just jump on and send some messages to people and sort of, you know, get involved in the conflict in that way. And I, I'm not sure that's easy to replicate um, in terms of if you have a government agency doing it, right? And so that's going to be difficult. Um, but in terms of the uh, the future and sort of what it holds, I mean, we've seen this become, and I've talked to, to some many other of my colleagues, and we've seen this become just sort of overwhelming in terms of the information space. And we've seen, for example, Ukrainian authorities basically say, don't share anything about troop movements or videos or TikToks or any, anything like that. And you've actually seen a large public support for that to where people actually are sort of self-correcting and telling others not to share things because it gives away locations. And you've also seen the right. just the explosion of OSINT 
capability, you know, on in the Twitter sphere and all that stuff like that. Um, and so I've seen you've we've seen a lot of things come into a more of a verified space as well in terms of OSINT, but also the the public reaction to sort of trying to contend with all these different types of information that are coming out and and sort of the government recognizing that there's so much going out there that they've got to also self-contain and self-correct a little bit as well. Is there a um, an evolution to this to a certain point to where things become more restrictive because there's just so much information out there? And then how do you sort of, uh, I guess, in your opinion, how do you sort of achieve a balance between, you know, somebody's ability to have a TikTok video versus it giving away troop movements? <laughs> Those are very, very good points <laughs> um, because the person who you know, is not trained in open source intelligence, will often put out stuff without realizing that it's OSINT, um, without being cognizant of the fact that if you're there viewing it, then your foe is out there viewing it as well. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're digesting it and, and using it as they will. I kind of wonder, since, since it would be, you know, very hard to, you know, put these capabilities back in the bottle, if there, there needs to be an expansion of OPSEC training, basically, um, operational security that doesn't just focus on, you know, people who are working in sensitive spheres, but acknowledging at this point that almost everybody's in a sensitive sphere <laughs> by being out there and, and, and being able to photograph a troop movement that's happening down at the corner and not thinking much of it other than to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, put this up on TikTok because, you know, it shows um, Russians coming down my street. So I, I it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just expanding the, the amount of, of people that, you know, we would uh, classify as dealing with sensitive information. So it, 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 it would be interesting to see how, you know, an expansion of OPSEC education could take shape basically and how, um, how people might respond to that as well. You know, some colleagues of mine, we, we sort of joke a bit that like we're getting back to like the whole civil defense era, you know, um, after like World War II or during World War II. And you're, you're you know, in terms of, you know, the, the bunkers, the importance of bunkers, like you're seeing in Ukraine and, and shelters and things like that. And, and, and how that's sort of been incorporated in Finland has been extremely interesting in terms of how they've integrated that into the building codes for residential buildings and apartment buildings and stuff. But but also in the context of, uh, you know, OPSEC and, and, you know, the old posters that were out there of like, you know, loose lips sink ships. And this all kind of right. constant reminders and public awareness reminders about, you know, what you say and, and who you're talking to has an impact on the, on the conflict. And so it's interesting that this is almost going back in that direction, I guess. Maybe interesting is not the best word, but it's it's unique. And and journalists, you know, often hear back, you know, from an agency saying, okay, can you please not run that? Can you please sit on that for a little bit? Because, you know, it's good, but could potentially jeopardize lives. But that's not going to be directed towards, you know, the ordinary person on Twitter <laughs> who, who just sees some great information and, you know, wants to put it out there and wants to get a lot of retweets <laughs> and um, doesn't understand or comprehend um, how that information could be endangering or doesn't trust the government if the government says putting out that information could be endangering. And instead, they just want to operate from pure transparency. 
Yeah, definitely. That's it's going to be interesting times to say the least. Well, Bridget, thank you uh, very much for sort of sharing your thoughts and having this conversation with me today. And if people wanted to be able to get in touch with you, where could they find you? What's the best place? Uh, so I can be found on on LinkedIn. I can be found on Twitter at Bridget CJ. Um, and definitely people can visit Homeland Security today to see our latest articles on there. Okay, great. Absolutely. So if you're listening to the podcast, go ahead and head over to Homeland Security Day and check out the work from Bridget and her team over there as well. A lot of great information and good stuff going on over there. So Bridget, thank you so much. And thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info. That's tiems.info. And also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.